Welcome to the Reimagined Mental Health series on Investec Focus Radio SA, brought to you by Investec Life. I'm Katie Katapodis. Episode 3 of the Reimagine Mental Health Series podcast will focus on the economic dimensions of mental health in South Africa and the country's mental health system. Based on a recent investment case for mental health in South Africa, unaddressed mental health conditions, including depression and anxiety, cost our economy an estimated 161 billion rand per year. With me in studio today, I've got Dr. Sumeya Dokrat, global consultant and health economist. And we're going to unpack that title a little bit later because I absolutely love it. Barty Patel, National Executive, Director of SA Federation for Mental Health. And Sinan Klanklasitomo, Head of Insurance Business at Investec Life. Dr. Dokrat, let's start with you, a health economist. I really I'm so curious about that. And I want to unpack that a little bit with you, because if anything is necessary in today's world, it's a health economist, I imagine. Well, that's very kind of you to say, but I have to say, I sort of fell into this field, what I say, about 13, 14 years ago, and I did my training in, in health economics, not realizing how valuable it would, it would end up becoming. In terms of what I do and what I focus a lot of my time and career on is sort of easily described in three sort of areas. On the one hand, I'm interested in measuring what the economic impact of mental illness, uh, good mental health, poor mental health is to households. On the second stream, we as health economists spend a lot of time trying to cost health services more broadly. And on the third sort of stream of my work, what I try and do is measure what we should be spending. And then the all important question of how do we then pay for it, given that it's very unlikely that at any stage there will be a large pool of resources that are sort of given to a particular health priority. So I want to pick up on that because there are some staggering figures doing the rounds. And I know that, you know, my guests are all nodding here, but based on a recent investment case for mental health in South Africa, unaddressed mental health conditions, and this includes depression and it includes anxiety, costs our economy here in South Africa an estimated, and wait for this because it really is staggering, 161 billion with a B, 161 billion rand per year. And this is as a result of lost days, of work on account of illness, absenteeism in extreme cases, premature mortality. So this is absolutely huge. And I think if anything gives us pause to kind of stop and look at these figures, I think it is that. I want to bring you in here because this is massive. So Dr. Dockrat spoke about how do we then pay for this, the cost to our economy. But from your perspective, as head of insurance business at Investec Life, what do you make of such figures? Yeah, it's actually staggering. It's, it, 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 it's, it's a lot. And just from the insurance and life insurance specifically point of view, we're seeing some of these claims uh, as claims coming through. So if you talk about some of this portion being people unable to work and being uh, absent from work, that's really directly translate into the insurance claims that we see. But a lot of it's also absenteeism, also presenteeism, where people are actually present, but they're not just not productive. That you can never capture in terms of the insurance side and see the true cost of that. But what you can see, gets our estimate at the moment that over 2 billion of that is direct insurance claims. And we know in South Africa, we are severely underinsured. 
So a lot of that is shouldered, as, as the doctor said earlier on, by the families who are not appropriately or even insured at all. So do you think that there's possibly an even bigger figure to attach to mental health issues in South Africa when we talk about the mental health economy? So this particular research looked at 161 billion rand. But from what you're saying, I'm gathering it's actually much more than that. Certainly way more than that. But for me, I think where, where we see direct and indirect costs, we can be able to estimate those much better. But the hidden cost for me is where I, where, where I think there's a lot of... Uh, underestimation of the costs. Specifically, if I look at my industry, where we look at the numbers, we know that mental health has got a direct impact in terms of income protection or sickness benefits or disability benefits. Those are direct costs. And the indirect costs are like the contribution of mental health to suicide claims. And you can measure those but without much certainty as the earlier claims. And the hidden costs are what are the second or third layer effects of, of mental health, like one of the cancer and the recoveries of people who are suffering cancer and cardiovascular conditions and the other conditions. Those are very, very difficult to estimate. And those could be running in much bigger figures than that just the two billion of direct costs I, I quoted earlier. Bauti Patel, I want to bring you in here because for me that then begs the question, does corporate South Africa take this seriously enough? You always find corporates saying, yes, we do have a program. We do make psychosocial counseling available. But for me personally, the question is how much goes around the dialogue on mental health? We know stigma is the biggest barrier to addressing mental health. So I love that you spoke about stigma. And in fact, we know that in recent days and weeks, the conversation particularly around stigma, has focused on a woman that the world was so in awe of for so long. And I'm specifically talking about New Zealand's Prime Minister. This is somebody who I personally was in absolute awe of. And she stood up and told the world, I don't have anything left in my tank. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But I don't have anything left in my tank and I therefore cannot make myself available to run for this next election. And so... Now, New Zealanders are going to look towards a new prime minister. What do we make of something like that? What is commendable is the fact that there is a young, vibrant woman in a leadership role who has taken a bold step to admit to the rest of the world, really, and to herself that there's only so much one can take on your plate. And why is it that as society, we tend to label this as weakness? We tend to give it negative connotations rather than saying, I'm here, tell me how I can help you. And, and that's what we want from leadership in the country, from our CEOs who can acknowledge that they can't be this alma maters who can take on everything. Just because you work 18 hours a day doesn't mean you must take a badge home. You have to be able to look at what are you capable of doing and also recognize that you work with human beings and these human beings have a life outside of the mm. workplace. Is it not, Barty, a luxury that very few in South Africa can afford? And I want to bring it into the South African context. So in our South African context, we are dealing with a lot daily. So not only do we have a country that economically is not as vibrant as it should and could be, there are load shedding issues that are affecting our mental health and our businesses and our working ways daily. And it almost feels as if this taking a step back approach, as commendable and wonderful as it is, we are dealing with some very basic bread and butter issues in South Africa with an economy that is so divided between the haves and the have-nots that it is an absolute luxury to think that you can take a step back. Because ultimately, the question that you need to answer is, 
How am I going to put food on the table? How am I going to pay for school fees? How am I going to buy uniforms? How am I literally going to pay for transport and to get around if I have taken that time? So it's this balance that we haven't been able to strike, I don't think, both as corporate South Africa and just generally in our country. Sinekankla, I don't know if it's something you want to weigh in on and what the what constructively our next steps could be even. Yeah, I think if we look at holistically as a country, we're definitely under a lot of pressure individually and as households. But for me, I also have just a classic example where within our client base, where there are professionals, there are high-income earners, they do have access to at least a therapist or someone within their workplace that can support them. But I'm just adding to a a point of stigma. Sometimes when you even do have access and you do have means to take some time off that we see that people are not taking the measures. And I also see for me another classic case, the gender dynamic to the stigma. We do find and it's evident, we see it in our data and claims that males do tend to present much more severe symptoms and they do tend to seek help from a therapist or someone who's professional much, much later than women do. And again, there for me, I put that squarely, maybe not entirely, but largely to stigma rather than access to care, because I'm talking here about people who are professionals. They are senior executives. And, and you've got the means, and got the means. to seek out they, and pay for And the you care. look at their balance sheet and their income statements, they do have the means. They can take the time off and they do definitely have access to the right uh, professional help, but they do take longer to do that. And again, to what Bert was saying, that can also be contributed by the fact that you could be seen as weaker. You are on, now you are CEO and executive in a corporate South Africa. You could be seen as you're in a position of weakness from that top shot executive who's career driven, who's producing results day in and day out, year in, year out. Uh, now, if you have to take time off, what does that indicate? What does it mean? Can you be able to come back? Some and people what, have been, do having, what do I tell my colleagues? What do I tell my colleagues? What do I tell the markets? So, that, I think, for me, drives a lot of fear sometimes within the market and within the executives and the professionals in general. I'm going to bring Dr. Dockrat into this part of the conversation. Dr. Dockrat, we've seen since COVID-19, we've witnessed an increase in mental health and health-related issues. How has this driven changes in GDP? Have you studied that? 4% of our GDP is being absorbed in unaddressed sort of mental health problems. We know uh, from emerging evidence that we're seeing the long-term effects of long COVID are uh, impacting neurological and brain health and also bringing on a host of mood disorders, both as a result of the experience of COVID, but also the result of living through lockdown, adjusting to changes in household dynamics, etc. So I really think there needs to be a shift in the way that we view not only you know, mental health and mental well-being, But rather than speaking about what it takes, I think the key message is that it'll take very little to really reverse a lot of these trends. So then, Klankla, I want to bring you in here. Investec Life made a very public declaration to tackle stigma associated with mental health. And this was last year at your recent symposium uh, held in October. Can you share what measures you are very practically putting in place? I think as a starting point, we, we realized that as, as an insurer in, a, in an industry that has always viewed mental health like any other condition, how we measure it, how we see it. And I was hearing earlier on uh, Dr. Sumeya talking about the psychosocial risks. We've always looked at the, at the psychological risk and, and ignore the social elements uh, to it in the insurance space. So for us, we saw that this is an opportunity to actually not only rethink 
mental health, but contribute to our industry, the insurance industry, and how we should be thinking about mental health and what support we should be looking to provide to clients in the industry and our own clients that may, that may be. And, and stigma, actually, of all the things that we, we're analyzing as, 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 as the contributors or as the hindrance in, 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 in the industry, stigma was one thing that we found to be the most difficult one to, uh, to tackle. And particularly one, around men. Particularly around men. As I said, this is evident if you, if you look at claims uh, that we're seeing, the severity of those claims and the timing of those claims that you get from, from men. Uh, and I'll speak later on about the flags, the, the amber the, and the red flags that you usually see in claims and where they are currently in South African industry. So that for us, we currently view that we're in the amber um, flags. And that means that we should be doing something. How do you know you're getting to red? And how do you, how do you know that we're currently in amber? So the insurance space is interesting because we've got different products. And I know South Africans, we're always fascinated about death benefits and funeral cover and all those things. But in living benefits, that's really where you see the biggest direct claims due to mental health or mental illnesses. And there are two different uh, specific uh, claims that you can claim from. The one is income protection or what they call sickness benefits. So you're, un- you're unable to work, you're taking time off, pays you out pays your salary, basically. And then the other ones will be permanent disabilities, so a permanently medical boarded, and then it can pay you until you get to retirement, your, your a lump sum or an income until retirement. And what we've measured internationally and globally over time is that um, the musculoskeletal claims, so those are your joints, your, bone, your bones, and your uh, connective tissues, have always been the highest when it comes to income protection. And mental health comes second. And globally, we saw that mental health started tipping over, being the, the leading cause of these income protection claims. And in South Africa, we just under, and, and with COVID, we really came close to uh, to being the top uh, highest claimed uh, condition. And that for me is the amber flag. The red flag will be when you start seeing your suicide claim going up. It's difficult most of the time to attribute all of the suicide claims to mental health or mental illnesses, but we know it's a one of the big contributors. And once you start seeing those going up, if it's unaddressed, then your red flags are up there and you start seeing the biggest cost in your, in your insurance claims uh, coming in. I find what you said so fascinating there because you spoke about muscular skeletal claims. That's easy, isn't it? Because I've got a broken wrist. I've got a pain in my hip. I've got a knee issue. I can identify it. I've got a back problem. It's tangible. I have something to say that doesn't necessarily perpetuate this whole issue of stigma. But there's nothing practically tangible about mental health issues. For me, another dynamic that we find in South Africa, and I also see this in data, is that 40% just people are applying for insurance. 40% of people are expressing voluntarily that they are stressed. So this is beyond just now clinically diagnosed depression, anxiety, or anything like that, just stress. And to speak to to the indicators, if you've got 40% of the people disclosing, we know that there's also some level of non-disclosure. So that number is probably much bigger than that. But also for me, what is also worrying, but also interesting about the statistics is that when it comes to medical professionals, that percentage is much higher. So the people who need to look after us, our health, sometimes are the ones who are actually on higher pressure and much more, especially coming out of COVID with medical professionals. Mm-hmm. We've seen that for me, at 40% overall for other professionals, I'll, I'll assume medical professionals will definitely be above 50% because we definitely see that it's higher than that. And for me, that's a worrying concern then because we also need to look after ourselves on COVID, cancers and other conditions. That's just a worrying concern that you have to address the awareness and the prevention up front because you're also straining your healthcare system at, at the other end. We know that the human resources are one of the constraints in the system. So if they are also under mental health pressure, it becomes quite dire. I get particularly concerned when we read about those on the front line. It's uh, medical professionals. It's our nurses, our doctors, our SAPS, our police officers, our teachers, those at the front line who are 
essentially tasked with protecting, helping, assisting, growing, teaching are often the ones who are absolutely struggling the most. And I don't think we're having those conversations in South Africa. Yeah, I think during COVID, we we did recognize that. And that was important, you know, where society came back to acknowledge, you know, you remember standing in balconies, clapping your hands and, and acknowledging the work done by frontline workers. So I think while we do know that our frontline and essential staff are under pressure, what we did in COVID can't be just because of COVID. We need to keep that in mind and acknowledge that day in and day out. But I think also while we're having the conversation in the workplace, remember we live in the most unequal country in the world. Correct. While we are seeing, yes, corporate South Africa is doing its bit by employing people as much as they can. That one person that has employment who goes back to a household of maybe six, seven, eight, nine, or 10 individuals who rely on the breadwinner, that person is also experiencing stress. You know, it's equivalent to the stress by frontline workers. You are the frontline for your family. So whatever the family needs is on your shoulders. So again, it comes back to the person in the corporate space, looking after those who really gain all their services in the public space. So the pressure is between the person who is the breadwinner, who has all these benefits, but how far do those benefits reach the family and the extended family that they have to look after? I love what you've said there. You are the frontline for your family. So the frontline workers are not necessarily just limited to those we know and those we've mentioned, but actually everyone is a frontline worker for their own family. Dr. Dockrat, are you worried that if mental well-being is left unattended, we're going to be dealing with another whole array of issues that includes alcohol, drug abuse, dependence on medication that potentially numbs you. So you don't necessarily have to think about the fact that you have, you know, all of the, the weight, what seems rather like the weight of the world on your shoulders. Can you speak to the wider economic benefits expected through comprehensive mental health responses? And then what steps we'll need to put in place for South Africa's economy to seize all of these opportunities? So there's various lenses that one can look at this. At the most fundamental and perhaps and relevant to this conversation, we know that through public health interventions that involve sort of intersectoral working, that's Department of Education, social development, and the corporate sector, where we all come together, one can see a huge amount of impact, particularly for your anxiety disorders, your depressive disorders among adults, where we see uh, improvements in productivity in the workforce. Now, the one complexity when we think about that is, of course, that we have a huge informal workforce that needs to be considered. And in these sort of formal calculations are often left out. And so this sort of returns on investment one can see in terms of return to work and reductions in presenteeism uh, are really calculated based only on our formal employment sector and could be, you know, and are likely to be much larger. But one needs to also acknowledge the sort of more indirect economic benefits that will accrue. For example, if we treat uh, the perinatal uh, depression among mothers, we are likely to see improved nutrition outcomes among their children. This places less dependence on our health sector. Similarly, if we place early interventions 
for risky alcohol and substance use, we will be avoiding the exorbitant cost of treating alcohol and substance use disorders themselves. Similarly, if we look at, you know, broader depression and anxiety, PTSD among our children, the rates already are very high. And just by delivering universal social and emotional learning programs in schools to children, we are improving their resilience to stress, their ability to cope. And this is particularly important when we think of climate change and sort of looking you know, into the future. And what you find is if you have someone in your household affected by depression, firstly, the economic impacts are larger than if you have somebody who's living with one of those chronic conditions I mentioned. But what's unique about it is you find that these economic consequences actually influence broader household dynamics. We see households reducing the frequency of their meals in order to cope with the loss of an income earner, for example. We see uh, children having to take on different roles in the household, possibly suffering from broader education outcomes. So there's a whole sort of range of economic improvements that one can see uh, through investing in comprehensive services. But in terms of what does it take? So certainly I'd be remiss if I didn't say investment. However, really what we need is all sectors of society coming to the party. And do you think, doctor, that once we look at this and we prioritize and we invest, do you think we could then potentially see that this would drive changes in the GDP? Absolutely. So the one thing that we have done in South Africa with our investment case that is unique to the global investment case methodology is that we have taken into account infrastructure costs, transport costs, training costs, the cost of supervising our community health workers and our nurses to be able to manage or understand what is a complex case that needs to be referred for more specialized care. We factored in awareness campaigns, education coming to the table and delivering these social and emotional learning programs. Within a 15-year period, we will be able to start seeing returns on investment across all what we call mental, neurological, and substance use disorders, in addition to those potentially at risk, one needs to ensure that the systems are ready and supportive in order to see that these economic benefits will will accrue. Certainly, we, we have cause to be optimistic. So, Bhatti, I'm going to bring you in here. We spoke about, the doctor said, there's cause to be optimistic. I want to end on a positive note. I want to end on some very practical steps that will also help us to look at this with some optimism, to know that not all is lost. The fact that we're even having this conversation today is for me a very practical, optimistic step. So what would you add to that? I want to state first and foremost that, you know, having a mental illness is not doom and gloom. We have seen and we have worked alongside, we continue to work with people who have mental health conditions, diagnosed mental health conditions, and you will see the success rate. These are the individuals who have made a concerted effort to access care and services and they are employed, be it self-employed or working in the corporate space or in the public space. So there are brilliant examples of people who have come forward looked for treatment and services, and are living a productive life. And I think if we can learn from that, we need to encourage people to be able to say, ask for flexible working hours. Get your managers and your colleagues to understand you so that 
they can also support you. So I think importantly is being able to create a supportive network, be it in the workplace, be it in the family or in the community. And I think if we can see corporates like Investec really leading the conversation, I am so grateful to be here today because I feel rest assured Here's Investec, willing to partner, willing to collaborate and willing to invest in mental health. And importantly, willing to have the very difficult conversation that will hopefully have a very productive, constructive and positive outcome. I think that being said, also it's corporates and, 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 and just myself as an industry, uh, representing the industry, insurance industry, being willing to invest externally. Because we always um, kind of fixated in doing what you can within our circle of influence or where we operating. But I think for me, listening to the discussion today, I think one rand spent in claims in the insurance space can actually go much faster or, or much further if invested externally in the systems where it can actually deliver the care in a much more preventative uh, measure. I think we're spending, uh, last estimates was about more than 50 billion we spend in claims in South Africa and more than half of that in South Africa because we kind of uh, also have got our unique structures in South Africa. More than half of that is due to external causes. We've got the cancers, we've got the cardiovascular conditions and other natural causes, but a large portion of our claims we're seeing in the market are external, which is largely driven by substance use. And, and, and abuse. And the law, a large portion of that is also driven by mental health. And I think if we're spending some of the rents that we're paying in claims externally in improving the systems in the preventative care, that can actually be beneficial down the line. It's a chicken and egg. Do you invest and then see the benefits or you foresee the benefits and you invest? I think that's what calls a, a leadership in the, in the corporate space and specifically in the life insurance space. It's a chicken and egg and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And commitment. And commitment. But what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing is that it is starting at some level. I'm going to thank you all so much for your time today. Dr. Sumaya Dokrat, Bharti Patel and Sinantlantla Sitomo. It's really been a fascinating discussion. I don't believe that this is the end of the discussion. And we know that particularly with this podcast series, it's going to continue. And we're going to continue talking about ways of how to have a positive impact on society, on business in South Africa, on the insurance sector in South Africa, on the economy in South Africa, despite difficulties that we experience as a country and as individuals. I thank you all for your time today. And that brings us to the end of the third episode of our Reimagined Mental Health Series, brought to you by Investec Life, an authorized FSP and licensed insurer. If you'd like to listen to the next episode when it comes out in a month's time, please subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, from me, Katie Katapodis, and the Investec Life team, goodbye.